Hello and welcome to Switzer TV. I'm Peter Switzer and thanks for joining us. We kick off tonight's show looking at the Mirror Buka Fund that had a 40% plus gain in the past financial year. We find out how come and whether it's likely to keep doing these big returns with the MD Mark Freeman of AFIC, which also runs the Mirror Buka Fund. Next, bond market guru of Coolabar Capital, Chris Joy, looks at the challenges of the Delta strain and the lockdowns and how it will affect the economy and investing going forward. And for a change, Chris is a tad ne negative. Then we hear from the portfolio manager of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund, Marcus Bogdan, on the great dividend payers he's selected for my listed fund and why. And finally, the founders of M Squared Capital, Paul Miliotis and Paul Mirren, look at how the lockdowns will affect investing in property and mortgage funds like theirs. So let's go to Mark Freeman and the Mirabuka Fund. Joining us now is the MD of AFIC, which also has a company called Mirabuka listed on the Australian stock market, and it's been doing pretty well of late. Mark, good to see you. Yep, good to see you too. Now, Mark, let's concentrate on uh, what Mirabuka does. You know, most people should know AFIC after all these years. If they don't, well, they can go to Wikipedia or your website. <laughs> but let's Let's concentrate on Mirabuka because it's like an offshoot of AFIC and it has a special investment theme, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. Well, Mirabuka only invests in small to mid-cap stocks. So when we say mid-cap, so effectively anything outside the 50 litres um, is their investable universe. Um, but we also have a, um, an approach where if we buy a company that is a smaller mid-cap and it does really well and it ends up being a top 50 stock, we don't have to sell it immediately. Um, we naturally will over time um, exit those stocks, but we don't have to do it straight away. So, but the bulk of the portfolio is, is essentially in yeah, those companies outside the 50 layers. And what it means is I guess the big difference from what you'd see out of, a, um, out of the market, I guess, is that, you know, we've got no major banks. Um, we don't have the big resource companies. Um, so you do get exposure to, I guess, what I would say the more, growth oriented companies um, in the market and it's performed exceptionally well, not just over recent time, but um, since we started the company. Does the fund have a pretty reasonable exposure to tech stocks like like the wax stocks and all that sort of stuff? Uh, look, look we, we do end up with some of them um, due to the nature, but not as much as what you'd think. Um, and you know, our bias, we don't tend to want to buy the stocks that are on sort of P's of, you know, 60, 70, 80 or 100 times. So that's not really our style. But, um, you know, we've had we've had stocks like Zero for a long period of time. You know, we have Iris. We've got NetWealth in there um, since the IPO. We've had Hub. Um, you know, we've got Car Sales, NextDC. So, um, yeah, there's a fair bit of those Um uh, technology type businesses in the portfolio. It seems to me they're more like the Honest John version of tech stocks rather than the the, the shooting stars that can, can, can keep on shooting or can it eventually fall to earth. Yeah, well, that's not really our style to sort of chase the hot stocks. We want real businesses that are run by real people. Hmm. Um, and our approach, you know, I, I guess it's similar to AFIC. We want our focus is, or our style is really around what we call quality. So real companies that we can 
we know we're buying for the long term and run by people we can back. So um, yeah, I think your observation is correct there. Does it produce a, a dividend of sorts? Um, well, no, the, the overall yield on the portfolio is quite low, um, but that's on the stocks we invest in. But uh, given that we're run as an LIC or a listed investment company, um, we naturally do have some turnover and we do build up some capital gains. And when we um, make a capital gain, we have to pay capital gains tax and we build up franking credits. Um, we've got quite a big pool of those and we draw on some of that each year to, I guess, enhance the dividend we pay to shareholders. So we'll pay through the earnings we receive from companies. And in most years, we've paid out some of our capital gains. Um, so overall, it's actually generated a very, very good uh, frank dividend stream for our investors. So um, you've had a, a very good uh, return. Financial year, I did a rough estimate, looked at around 48%. I'm sure you know exactly what it was. 48% about right? 48.6, so you're close. Gee, you're picking me up. <laughs> But, but, you know, but what I'm, I'm intrigued about, and you understand this better than most, is that Mirabooka does really well out of crashes, like after the GFC, it was a nice rebound. Then you kind of went sideways for about four or five years, and then you've you know, crashed through and you come back. Is the, the very nature of the investment style, um, does it lend itself to the fact that small caps often get smashed in crashes? But there's such good value there that a fund like yours can pick them up at really good prices. Yeah, look, look, it's potentially part of that. That there are investment cycles. Um, I guess you go through. Well, when there's a crash, um, the high quality companies stand out, um, not just in terms of share price performance, but it's related to the profit performance at the end of the day. And it goes back to the point we want to invest in real businesses. Um, and then when you're recovering. Uh, the market sort of flocks back into, again, quality companies. But as you go through a recovery stage in markets, as markets move up, people will drift down into lower, what I call lower quality companies. And at the peak of a market, you'll tend to find really low quality companies are running hard and people chasing them. And we just don't do that. So our performance might lag sort of late in the um, market cycle, but then you have another pullback. And then I guess we come back to reality and say, well, what is, what is the company earnings? What's its profit like? And that then tends to favor our portfolios again. So um, plus, you know, over the long term to our bias is we want to be in companies that we think can grow their earnings. There's a legitimate growth path yep. to that and it's real. Um, and that comes through over time as well. So it's a combination of those two factors. So, you know, a one-year number is really good, but when you look at our three, five, and ten-year numbers, um, you know, when you include franking, our, our benchmark, which is the combined mid and small caps uh, index, is up eight point nine. We've been doing thirteen point one. So overall time periods, it's been, uh, I guess, a pleasing result for yeah. our shareholders. So, so I, I, the, this is the point I'm going to make. You know, because a lot of people who watch this show are experienced investors, but other people are new to it. And you know, there's been a, a real trend of younger people even older people who are new to the market who are investing so uh, and I, I made the point during the week and one of the stories i wrote that okay the asx 200 is up 24 percent financial year 
I wouldn't expect them to do it again this year. Uh, but And similarly, your 48% would be very hard to reproduce this year. But the long run result is the number people should focus on, that, that 13%. Um, that's the kind of number. And I guess you, part of that 13% would be the, the big rebound out of a crash. But you probably, if you take that out, you're still going to be like a, a 9 or 10% per annum. I yeah, oh, I think that's sort of what it's been in, in lower market levels. And, and like you said, you can't use what's happened in the last 12 months as a real guide because you know, any number you calculate the return, the most important thing is what was your starting point. Yeah. And if your starting point was 12 months ago, that was really when you're probably still in um, COVID and the issues around that, the market was still low, yeah. very low. Um, you know, it fell, what, over 30% in, in the preceding March. So... You know, that's that's coming off that low base but yeah lot, lot longer term you need to think about it differently and we just tend to look at our relative relative return and um it's been pretty good over that long period no, it's been very good uh, I, I must admit i'm sure you have seen some of the headlines from some of the you know industry super funds have been talking about their greatest returns ever which to my way of thinking is a little bit um i've been saying to all my financial planners here we talk to our clients and we give them our three returns no, no, we'll tell them about our great one-year return, but it's the longer returns that actually define the quality of a fund or an investment. Oh, that's right. And we've been doing this far too long. I sort of learned off one of my um, ex-bosses, Bruce Teal, that um, we used to ask him, where does he see the market? And he used to say, as time went on, it was either with 20, 30, 40 years, and for me, it's nearly 30 years' experience. I can tell you with great confidence, I have no idea. <laughs> that's right but all, all, all we can tell you is that we've got good companies yeah exactly right so um but on that subject what's what's the the feeling from your investment committee about at the moment we've we've seen that uh, there's a bit of consternation around the coronavirus um, the delta strain <clears throat> but what's the overall feeling um you are you guys you know confident to remain in long stocks over the next year or two Oh, look, certainly over, we only take long-term timeframes and, you know, we're still confident that the companies we've got in our portfolio have opportunities to grow. But our, pro, our broad sense on the market is it's had a pretty good run. Yeah. And, you know, we're probably downplaying expectations, particularly when you have the year we've had, even though it was off a low base, so you'd expect it to go up a fair bit. Um, you know, these, it's been a pretty robust performance from the market. Mm. Um, and what I still think of some quite challenging times but you know the market keeps you know investors are still struggling to find places to put money with interest rates still still incredibly low um there's not a lot of alternative to to cash so it just keeps pouring into equities um and then when you have the the experience is still in people's mind about the sell-off you had last year but then the rebound um you know, dips might get bought for a while um, while people remember that actually was a good buying opportunity. So uh, it all goes back to that point is it's, it's very hard to pick where things are going. But certainly, you know, if you look at long-term numbers from our market in the US, things like price to book and price to sales, we're more at the upper end of the range rather than lower, that's for sure. Yeah. Mark, thanks for joining us on the program and good luck with the year ahead. Pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. 
Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. Let's just cut now to something that's really important to markets right now and you care about these sorts of things. This Delta strain and how it's being handled, you know, the optimistic view would be, okay, there's a, a, a window of worry where the Delta strain takes a bit of a stranglehold because of low levels of vaccinations. But as vaccinations escalate, I hope to, towards Christmas, particularly in Australia, we might get on top of it, it becomes less of a threat. But what's your view, Chris, on the Delta strain and its potential to really rock financial markets? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think um, one thing we've done is quite a lot of modelling and forecasting on trying to figure out when we will reach herd immunity in Australia. So I can tackle this question in a slightly different fashion. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we ask ourselves is when can we fully vaccinate 91% um, of all adults, which would be sort of equivalent to herd immunity. Although we know with Delta, it's highly transmissible, more trans transmissible apparently than COVID-19 uh, or the, the original you know, uh, variant of COVID-19. Yeah, much more transmissible uh, amongst adults, but also much more transmissible amongst children. Um, but just parking that aside, looking at the adult population, uh, on our mathematical modelling, what we did was we took the trajectories, the vaccination trajectories of 16 peer countries. Uh, obviously, Australia started with a the lag. There's been a lot of self-flagellation on Australia's you know, horrible you know, vaccination uh, trajectory, uh, as it's been described or very poor you know, vaccination strategy. But it's actually uh, the case, mate, if you look at the most successful countries in the world that have um, you know, partially or wholly eradicated COVID-19 at various points in time, specifically if you look at Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea and Japan, we all have almost identical vaccination trajectories. All, we're all sitting at like 20 to 30% of the adult population having had a first jab. We've all been very, very slow, and that's because we did a good job initially containing the virus. The one exception is Singapore. Um, but... Focusing on Australia, what we found is that there's a linear rate of growth in the vaccination trajectory between jabbing 20% of first ad of adults with the first jab through to 80% of adults with the first jab. Once you hit 80%, what we saw in Israel and other countries is um, you get more vaccine, uh, we get saturation, more vaccine hesitancy, and the, the numbers start, or the growth rate starts to roll over and it's non-linear. So we build a model that, accounted for that linear path between 20 and 80% of adults, uh, then accounted for the non-linear path between 80 and 90% of adults, and also the delay between the first and second jabs. On that, that basis, what we uh, determined was Australia should be able to comfortably vaccinate 90% or more of all adults by January or February next year. Now, that assumes we don't pick up our game. I think we will pick up our game, um, and I think you'll see much uh, higher vaccination rates. So the first point I'd make is, Herd immunity is in is in reach. We should should be there within six or so months, um, and uh, it will though be important to vaccinate children. Um, I believe that the government is looking at approving uh, the application of the Pfizer vaccine to kids uh, as young as twelve, as they do in the US, uh, and then they can roll that out through the school system. 
So I think um, ultimately the goal here is herd immunity, everyone being vaccinated and living with the virus. We're seeing this live in the UK. So in the UK, they have vaccinated about 90% of adults. And what they're seeing is they're getting a huge, whatever it is, third or fourth wave. So the daily number of infections in the UK are 40 to 50,000 people, but the hospitalization rates are much lower than they've had previously. And the ICU rates are very, very low indeed. And that's, I think, where we're going to start to focus on. We're, not, we're going to move the crosshairs away from infection rates, uh, away from even hospitalisation rates, through to ICU and death rates. And the ICU and death rates in the UK are much, much lower and probably fairly palatable for the community to live with. So coming back to Delta, you know, we now have this, uh, this new period of uncertainty. I mean, I've been surprised by how transmissible it, it appears to be. Um, and I think worryingly, until we get to 91% of adults or thereabouts who are uh, fully vaccinated, which won't be till January or February, um, at the latest, maybe you know, November or December at the earliest, um, until we get to that point, we are going to be um, subject to the spectre of rolling lockdowns. So I think for the economy and business, and whilst I'm, I'm very bullish on Aussie economic growth, once we get vaccinated, once we open up the borders, and once we return to some semblance of a new normal, I think between now and then we're seeing in New South Wales that they're really, notwithstanding a tough lockdown, they are um, increasingly struggling to contain the virus. You know, we today we're recording this. Uh, what's the date today? I think the twenty first of July. Um, uh, you know, we've had one hundred and ten new cases. I think it was, and something like you know forty odd folks who have been roaming free in the community uh, whilst being infectious. So. I think the problem is even if we eradicate it again in New South Wales through the current lockdown, I think it's going to take many, many weeks. So I could see New South Wales in lockdown um, through all of August into September. And, um, and then once we kind of feel like we've won the battle, the risk is we get new outbreaks. I mean, if, it, if we've seen that the virus invariably leaks out of quarantine. So unless we kind of shut up shop and completely close the country until we're fully vaccinated, I think we're going, to, um, we're going to find that we're going to have these rolling lockdowns, rightly or wrongly. There are some people who think we shouldn't have these lockdowns, but I think the outlook is actually a bit grim, mate, economically, just for the next um, six months. And that was Chris Joy of Coolabar Capital. And Chris also manages my Switzer Higher Yield Fund, which is a listed bond fund. And he does that because he is one of the best bond fund managers in the country. I, I got that excerpt from a podcast which I recorded yesterday. If you want to hear the entire podcast, we're actually looking into the history of Chris Joy, where he came from, how he's able to build this massive bond fund business, which he's got nowadays, and he writes for the AFR every Saturday. Just go to the link in the description below. Now let's go to Marcus Bogdan of the Switzerland Dividend Growth Fund. Well, joining us now is Marcus Bogdan, who is the Portfolio Manager for Switzerland Dividend Growth Fund and is from Blackmore Capital. Thanks for joining us, Marcus. Thank you, Peter, and it's good to be here. Now, mate, a couple of important questions. Uh, Sydney's in lockdown and uh, a person from Sydney may well be threatening your beloved city of Melbourne. Have you got or have, have you invested in any stocks that you think actually benefits from a lockdown? Well, we haven't changed the portfolio because of the lockdown and primarily because uh, we felt that 
the coronavirus uh, and the variants that we're seeing uh, were ongoing risks uh, for both the economy and the Australian share market. And hence, uh, we have been tilted in the portfolio towards really three areas which generally are more resilient and are, are beneficiaries of lockdowns. And they are in healthcare, primarily through our investment in Helios, which is the second largest pathology company in Australia. Uh, and you've seen a huge uptake in PCR or COVID testing in, in the last several weeks. In fact, uh, those numbers are up over 200% compared to the March, March quarter. And so we believe that um, Helios will be absolutely a beneficiary of that. And so that is a, a central uh, stock in the portfolio. The second area is in consumer staples. Uh, and they, and even in the longer lockdowns that we've had previously in Australia, Woolworths, West Farmers and Coles, uh, which all are in the portfolio, have tended to hold up reasonably well as people have stayed at home uh, and they've restocked their pantries. And the third area that we're exposed to, which has generally been a beneficiary also, has been online logistics. Uh, and, we, and we get that coverage through Goodman Group, which is the largest uh, distribution and logistics warehouse group in Australia. Okay, so there are three lockdown ones. Now, has there been um, an addition to the portfolio recently? If so, what and why did you add it to the portfolio? Well, very much in the theme that we've been talking to, uh, we have added to Endeavour in the portfolio, which was the spin out of Woolworths last month which is the drinks and the hotels business. Uh, and through that, the pandemic, uh, the retail liquor business, BWS and Dan Murphy have been uh, uh, very much a beneficiary of home liquor consumption. Uh, we expect that those trends will continue. And we also seeing uh, that the underlying execution of that business is particularly encouraging. And then ultimately, the smaller part of that group is the hotels division. And that when we finally do reach a level of normalization and reopening of the economies, we expect the hotels business will be a beneficiary of that as well. Mm. So it sounds like you're punting on the likelihood that Australians will be drinkers. That's not a very dangerous assumption, mate. Not a very dangerous yeah. one at all. Thank you. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Talk to you. Help the week's time. Pleasure. Thank you, Peter. Cheers. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording, and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. We're now joined by Paul Miliotis and Paul Mirren from M Square Capital. And I'm interested to gauge what's happening to their part of the market, their sector, with this current lockdown. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks Peter. So can you give us an idea? I know, Paul, you wrote a story recently about the lucky country, uh, particularly because of our property sector. Why did you say that? 
Well, look, uh, during uh, during the last 12 months or during the last since COVID, uh, Australia is only one of three countries in the world its economy was larger post-COVID than before COVID. Now, I'm not sure if I'm feeling lucky right now during this current lockdown, but Australia has performed exceptionally well during uh, the crisis because of a couple of different reasons. One, because of the government support, the fact that we were able to control the virus, um, the fact that uh, uh, property prices uh, were able were very, very stable during that time, and consumer confidence was good as well. So... Um, We've performed exceptionally well, but however, with this current lockdown, uh, some of the gains that we've had in the last 12 months, I think will be eroded. Okay, let's go to that now, because you guys, you know, you, you operate in a sector, um, you know, you, you're at the professional end, if you like, rather than the residential end, but the residential uh, prices have an implication on your, your type of investing. So what, what has the lockdown done so far? Well... Uh, look, uh, I think uh, there's a very substantial difference between last year's lockdown and this year's lockdown. Uh, we're actually seeing uh, confidence from um, borrowers and investors um, unchanged, whereas last year we saw a, uh, a lot more fear into the market as well. And I think there is a little bit more certainty as well uh, that we're eventually going to get out of this situation. And it's, it's not a matter of if, but when. Look, in, in terms of our sector, Peter, I might just add something there. Because in M squared, we're backed by property, the majority of our property being residential. Initially, when the first lockdown happened, a lot of our investors didn't know, or borrowers for that matter, didn't have a view on where the property prices would have gone. So they had a little bit of um, nervousness in terms of where the underlying security values were being. So once we came out of lockdown, we actually saw, and this was a prediction by M squared, with low interest rates of the property prices were going to increase and they increased significantly. This time, everyone does feel a little bit more wealthy, particularly in your Sydney's and your Melbourne's where their own homes have gone up in value. So coming into this lockdown, our investors and our borrowers are confident that the underlying security values are there. And with that has come a different confidence in terms of our sector. Um, a lot of our investors are telling us they've actually been living off the monthly distributions from, from investing in our sector. And they can rely on those uh, monthly distributions. And when people are, you know, even when construction lockdown is happening now, or when um, you know, your cafes are closed, people that are investing in our sector and getting their monthly returns, um, it does give them a lot of confidence. Can you tell me this guys, have you had any borrower clients who are terribly exposed to, exposed to the CBD? Because that's something I, I don't think fairly you wouldn't have, you would have thought about, say, two years ago, if you provided funds to somebody who might have had a great business in the CBD area and they were borrowing. Have, have you encountered something like that or has good luck, in a sense, followed you? Fun, funny enough, um, it hasn't been the borrower side, but we had a few of our investors who are significant um, cafe owners in the middle of the CBD in Sydney, and they were significantly invested into M squared facilities. And when lockdown one happened, um, they were in dire straits. They needed the cash flow. They needed their monies um, back. So from a borrower perspective, we're actually quite blessed that we didn't have direct exposure um, to businesses, particularly in the CBD. Mm. Um, we actually made active um, decisions after lockdown one to be careful in certain sectors. So we we haven't lent to, to publicans um, we haven't lent to cafes and I'm, you know, I do feel for them, but we did see increased risk in retail sector as well. 
Um, but from an investor side, yeah, a few of our investors that had businesses, successful, really successful businesses, um, had to change direction and get some of their capital back to shore up those businesses. And the flip side, I guess, uh, Paul Mirren, would have been that maybe some suburban borrowers, suburban business borrowers, are actually a lot less of a worry because their businesses are going through the roof. That's right. So, look, look there is a bit of a disbalance at the moment, um, and, and we are going through that, through that phase as well. There's no doubt about it that this time in this particular lockdown, you have to be a little bit more careful of the borrowers that you lend to um, because the government initiatives are not as generous as they were before. And unfortunately, um, if I'm looking at retail, if I'm looking at retail commercial, if I'm looking at cafes, if I'm looking at travel, some of those businesses are at risk uh, mm-hmm. of not being able to open up after our coming out of this lockdown. Yeah, and I guess some of those businesses that you've you've lent to who, who are based in the suburban areas, they're arguably going to be better f- forever because of the hybrid working model that's likely to be in place. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're looking at an opportunity at the moment, which you would not consider um, to be a very buoyant business, but they've doubled their, their, it, they doubled their turnover in the last 12 months. Yeah. You, would ne- yeah. you would never think of it. So, look, there is a bit of a disbalance. Uh, you know, we being a lot more cautious, we're being more analytical in relation to some of the businesses. There are some patches where we will avoid and there's some patches which are doing very, very well. Um, so, on, on that note, one, one thing to note in our business particularly, Peter, is while the underlying business is very important from a cash flow perspective, and investors can rely on in the unlikely event that we did have to recover the monies, we always only lend to people that are backed by security. residential, commercial or industrial property. So while analysing the business from a cash flow perspective and ability to service the debt is extremely important, what you fall back on on collateral for our particular business is very important. We won't directly invest purely into a cafe for argument's sake if we don't have a property um, backing that particular loan. Um, While we don't want the businesses to fall over because it does affect the cash flow and you'll need to recover the monies, um, the, the underlying security is always backed by property. Yeah. So, so guys, what are, the, what are the opportunities you're seeing now in this changing environment? I, I think um, look, we are very nimble and we're finding a lot of opportunities. I think we're, we're saying we're actually busier now in lockdown than we were before lockdown. We're seeing a great depth of interesting opportunities because we're able to move very quickly on it. Um, I think the biggest fundamentals for investors is comes down to the three rules, is that being invested invested in the market all the time, so not to be afraid. So, for example, the biggest lessons that our investors learned from the last lockdown is that if you can, opportunity cost, if you can make 6.5% return, why not do so? Um, So, one is being invested. Two is understanding the fundamentals of risk. And three um, is also to understand... um, uh, to have um, um, diversification as well. So what, if you have all of your eggs in one basket, for example, it's not necessarily the best thing. And the reason why you have diversification is because when you have situations such as this, you even out your returns and you still have liquidity. And from a borrower perspective, Peter, maybe I can add something um, to that. Um, the banks are struggling at the moment with people working from home in terms of speed. Um, borrowers still need to... Um, have those purchases complete. They still need to use um, equity to um, push into their businesses. So 
there's an opportunity to get high quality borrowers that we wouldn't um, have historically been able to attract uh, because our returns are higher than the banks, significantly higher than the banks. But when you've got the certainty that we will deliver on the borrowers in a specific time, that is a major reason why um, borrowers are coming to us. Um, and our investors are getting probably the best arbitrage we've seen um, from monies either held in, in term deposits and lending out um, to these type of um, mortgage investments than we have in our history. Mm. So the arbitrage is great for our investors. Um, the underlying securities are good um, as well. So it's, it's kind of a perfect storm for our sector. Yeah, we need to change that term. Perfect storm always seems to be like, it's supposed to be good, but a storm's not good. Maybe a perfect zephyr, but it doesn't have the same effect, does it? <laughs> it I'll let Guys, you take that one. Thanks for coming on the program. Talk to you in a few, uh, few weeks' time. Stay safe. Thanks, Peter. And that was Paul Miliosis and Paul Mirren of M Squared Capital. Look, if you like what we do here and you want more of it, have a look at the Switzer Report. Just go to switzerreport.com.au. That's where a lot of our really good stock tipsters and analysts put together great stories on Monday, Thursday, and I do a massive report on Saturday mornings. It's the kind of thing you really do need if you want to invest really wisely. At switzerreport.com.au. See you on Monday night with our latest show.